Hello, and welcome to episode number 15 of Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. In this episode, I'll be speaking with the multi-talented, multi-faceted media creator, Michelle Meek. Michelle is a writer, filmmaker, professor, and founder of NewEnglandFilm.com and independent media publications. Her most recent books include Independent Female Filmmakers and The Mastermind Failure Club. She's directed numerous award-winning short films, including Imagine Cole 37, and she worked as an associate producer on the documentary feature Salvage, which premiered at the 2019 South by Southwest Film Festival. Her scholarly research focuses on depiction of sexual consent in media and literature, and she presented a 2018 TEDx talk. A few years ago, my daughter and I attended her baseball league screening of the 1993 film The Sandlot. It's a coming-of-age story about a group of preteen boys who are learning about life and discover their love of baseball. The film has very few female characters in it, and one of them is a lifeguard that all the boys have a crush on. And in one scene, one of the boys pretends to drown so that the lifeguard will jump in, rescue him, and begin giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. At which point, she gra- he grabs her by the head and begins kissing her. Afterwards, one of the other boys' voiceover comes on, and he says, what he had done was sneaky, rotten, and low. And cool, because he had had the guts to kiss a woman long and good. Right then, I realized that these are the types of scenes that are going by, often without our notice or comment, and yet they are the ones that are teaching us and our children about consent. She's an assistant professor in the Communication Studies Department at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts, where she teaches film studies, digital media, and screenwriting. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to please subscribe and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Michelle Meek. Hello, Michelle Meek. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So uh, one of the reasons that I was really interested in chatting with you is, uh, along with you being a great friend to Filmmakers Collaborative and sort of an institution unto yourself uh, in the guise of NewEnglandFilm.com, you know, to the New England filmmaking area. Uh, when, um, when we were chatting about putting the podcast together, particularly under the, uh, the title of Making Media Now, your name leaped to the fore because you are a media maker across multiple mediums. You make films, you write books, uh, you give TED Talks, and you teach, uh, which, right. is, which is just such an impressive array 
of don't uh, forget make websites <laughs> and you make websites that's right yes <laughs> right exactly i forgot the most obvious one right so let's begin at the beginning shall we um <laughs> when i was born no <laughs> when you were born what day, was what day of the week what sign are you first, i like to start with an astrological reading <laughs> take it from there um yeah what uh what inspired you as you were either growing up or uh, going to school, what inspired you to become a media maker? I think a story has always interested me. Um, and I also feel like from a very young age, I wanted to lead in some capacity. I remember one of the first things that I ever did that I, I made a neighborhood club in my cousin's neighborhood because I lived in New York City, but he lived in um, on Long Island and he had friends in the neighborhood and we made a club and I was president. You were president. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really sure what, what we did other than that I typed some letters. And Was this a two-person club? <laughs> You no, it was, it was like four people. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so I guess I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, there's there was some kind of bossy nature that I had from early on. You lobbied the votes from the other three. <laughs> Exactly. And, uh, became president. Well, congratulations. Right. I hope it was an <laughs> uncontested <you>. election. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the best kind, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, but I think that in terms of making media, and the reason why I'm interested in so many different forms is because I just really like narrative. I like stories and different narrative forms work for different projects. And in fact, even with writing, I do kind of a lot of different kinds of writing. Um, I have written screenplays I and that I've you know written and, and directed. I also um, write articles, so more journalistic kind of pieces. And then I also write scholarly pieces that get published in peer reviewed journals. So it's a, all, that's all a very different type of writing even. Um, but I also think that, you know, in, there's always some kernel that's the same, which is a really inquisitive uh, nature. And I just really am passionate about ideas and thinking through solutions to problems and whether that's in how to bring people together in some kind of community or how to create a resource for people or how to articulate an idea that hasn't been maybe well articulated before. It's kind of all part of the same inquisitive nature, I think. Are you conscious of the process that is taking place in your brain when a when an idea um, gives birth or springs forward, and are you conscious immediately of whether this is going to lend itself more to a visual representation via film or if this is something you want to write about? That's a really interesting question, and I have to say the answer is yes. The form always comes with the idea. For example, you know, many people have said to me over the years, you should make a film about consent. That's your area of research academically, and, and um, you know, obviously it would make so much sense. But I am just not interested Maybe that will change, but right now I am not interested in making a film about representations of consent. I'm interested in writing about it. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, the feature film that I decided to start working on that's a little bit in a holding pattern because of COVID and everything that's going on, but 
you know, the idea came to me from something very visual. I was observing street artists in Berlin, Germany, Mm -hmm. creating these works of art on what are legal graffiti walls there. And they would spend hours, like sometimes all day, painting these really intricate works of beautiful art. And then minutes or hours or days later, someone would literally come along with a roller brush and erase the entire thing and then use it as their canvas for their own work of art. And to me, that was just, there was something so visually striking about it. Obviously, it was also an idea that really struck me, but it wasn't something that I wanted to write about. It was something that I wanted to start interviewing people about and thinking about through the visual medium of film. And that is from the very aptly titled film, uh, Impermanence of Everything. Right, exactly. What's the status of that film right now? So um, I did some initial shooting um, in Berlin and put together kind of a research reel. I'm hoping to apply for some grants maybe this summer to begin doing more filming in earnest. Um, But right now, like I said, because of COVID, and I also have a lot of plenty of other projects to keep me busy. Let's not, (laughs) let's not be uh, unrealistic here. So, you know, as I'm working on those other projects, which kind of are more conducive to being stuck at home a lot, uh, um, you know, writing doesn't require me being out in the world. I can do much of my research from home. So the film will start picking up steam after this is all over. Uh, Which of the many paths that you travel seemingly simultaneously, which emerged first? Was it, was it academia? Was it film? Was it writing? Yeah. Um, So I think I've always considered myself a writer. I will say that from Mm -hmm. a very young age, I started journaling, you know, I kept a journal from when I was like seven or eight years old. I mean, they're incredibly boring even for me to read at this point, (laughs) but nonetheless, I was quite diligent about it. And, you know, I, so I always had an interest in kind of writing and stories and I was on the school newspaper in high school. And then I was on the, I was editor of my school newspaper in college. Um, I went to school initially for writing graduate school. I did an MFA at Emerson College in screenwriting. It started off as poetry, morphed into screenwriting while I was there. So I think the writing really did come first. And as I, um, as I got into screenwriting at Emerson, I was part of a project with a bunch of other students where um, a couple of writing students got together with a film student, a grad student, who directed each of our works. Um, And it was at that point through that experience that I really realized that I would like to direct as well, Mm -hmm. (laughs) being the the bossy person that I am. (laughs) And the club president. Um, Right, exactly. So, you know, it it occurred to me, hmm, that's not quite how I would have done that. And it really felt a little bit dissatisfying, actually, to me to have the work then completely reimagined. I don't know how I would feel like with a feature screenplay. I might feel differently about that. I don't know. I'd be willing to try the experience again, I guess I'll say. Um, But at that point, I became kind of interested in making my own work. And short films became a way for me to do that without necessarily needing a whole lot of outside financing. It was something that I could um, kind of manage myself and um, start to finish. And so, you know, that's kind of kept me in the short film arena, I think, for a long time. And it's only recently when I really decided, I think I'm ready to branch out into doing more feature work. Mm-hmm. And where along this path did the idea of uh, putting together the website 
newenglandfilm.com come into play? So when I was a grad student at Emerson, I, um, you know, I was interested in the film industry myself. I wanted to know what was happening in the community. I wanted to know what people were working on. I wanted to be able to discover more, connect more with people. Um, And there really wasn't a great way to do that. There was the Boston Film Video Foundation, which I discovered, which is an amazing organization um, that really did a lot to link the community at the time. And, um, but, you know, I, I was thinking more of a magazine because I came more from a journalistic kind of point of view. I was thinking of, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a magazine about the local film industry? Um, Of course, to start a print magazine is quite expensive and requires either that you have startup funds or that you have advertising. And I will say that selling has never been my favorite thing to do. Um, And so that was really pretty unappealing to me and felt really insurmountable. But my, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was very early on involved in, um, you know, basically websites in the mid nineties. As a developer, a designer? Programmer. Um, but he was, yeah. So he was part of a, a series of startups. You know, I mean, he was involved with one of the companies that had the first, I think it was called a T1 line in Boston. So it was basically the first internet connection that was sort of wired in. <laughs> um, and he, you know, kind of reached out to him and and started working with him and then quickly became really kind of drawn into the whole internet programming world and is still very much part of that. But so his idea was, you know, why not start it as a website? And, you know, one of his companies at the time said, we'll give you free server space. You can host it with us. And, and so the costs, there were no costs really. Um, There was a bit of a learning curve, of course, but, you know, being an inquisitive person, I'm always interested in learning something new. And so that didn't really deter me much. Um, And then very quickly, I mean, really like a few months in, it was so apparent to me that the website made a lot more sense than a magazine. Sure. And I dropped, I had originally started it called New England Film Magazine. And then I dropped the magazine and then it just became New England Film. And that was in 1997. So it was before people were starting websites as businesses in a lot of cases. Very true. And it was, uh, that was actually back when people were trying to figure out what to call websites that, <laughs> that had, you know, content such as yours, if, if, if you remember the whole zine, right, page, right? right magazine right. seemed too stodgy, old mm-hmm. school media, let's, you know, cut off a couple right. of syllables and call it a zine. Um, yeah, I have to say, I think back sometimes and, and remember that, you know, all of these domain names were available. <laughs> um, of course, at the time, it, you know, they were $100 or something to register per year. They were not that cheap, actually, then, not like now where they're $12, right? right? Yes, yes. Um, and so domain hoarding didn't, there were people who did it, who just reserved domain names and then sold them off to people. <laughs> But I, I've never been much of a prospector, so that was not going to be my path. <laughs> yeah, this, the the site, NewEnglandFilm.com, really became, I think, for the New England area, uh, just like a, a clearinghouse of idea and opportunities and uh, some um, kind of thought leadership, you know, in the along the, the lines of particularly documentary filmmaking, but just filmmaking in general. Mm-hmm. Have you observed or or come to feel like, is there anything that distinguishes a New England filmmaker from filmmakers in general? Well, I would say that, you know, people that 
want to stay in their community as opposed to moving to somewhere like New York and LA um, have made something of a conscious decision, whether it's in their control or not is, is, is another thing, but it's somewhat of a conscious decision to not be part of these other sort of more mainstream or bigger communities of film. Um, I mean, I, I spent a summer in LA and, you know, when you meet people there, it's kind of like, what area of the film industry do you work in? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> or what kind yeah. of, you know, what kind of role in the film industry would you like to have? Very much um, a company town. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, oh, wow, a filmmaker or, you know, that's, it's something more different here. Um, and, you know, I think that, I don't know that there's a specific type and I think it's becoming it's changing so much, right? Because there's so much more that can happen virtually now than years ago. I think originally it was pretty clear that if you wanted to quote, make it, in Hollywood, you really had to move there. And that might still be true to a large extent. But I think especially for writers, there's a lot more opportunity remotely than there used to be. So it kind of depends. But I guess I don't really see that there's such a type other than the fact that, you know, sort of New England has its unique personality in the country. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. How did you, so this, we're talking 22, 23 years ago, mm-hmm. how much of your time did the kind of maintenance and oversight and, you know, the, the task of kind of maintaining the purpose and the vision of NewEnglandFilm.com, how much of that did, did that consume for you? I mean, it has really changed a lot over the years. Early on, um, I was doing it alongside a full-time job. I, um, I decided that I was working at a magazine, Wear Magazine, which was in Boston. It's a sort of magazine for tourists given out at hotels. Um, And so I was doing it alongside my full-time job. I then quit that job and ended up getting a job at Somerville Community Access Television. And I did the two alongside each other. Um, and then there was a certain point when it, for New England Film that I really felt like this could sustain a small income of its own. And I was really ready to kind of take that leap. And I did. Um, and for a number of years, I ran it more, you know, that was kind of my job, my full-time job. And I would say that, you know, early on, it was really hard to sell ads because people wanted print. Then there became a time when people kind of got how internet advertising worked and it did become really appealing. And so that was sort of our heyday. And I'd say, you know, in the last kind of 10 years, it's been a lot harder again because so much advertising has moved over to social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so I think that in the last, you know, the last couple of years, as I went back to school and got my PhD and took a full-time job, I mean, obviously it's not taking a good deal of my time. I don't have that much extra time. So I kind of, it's been a little bit on, you know, a little bit of a holding pattern to some extent in that, you know, I'm kind of keeping things going, but not necessarily building a lot of new features or things like that or expanding it or getting more sponsors, things like that. And if I understand correctly, you're, you're, you're actually considering, or maybe you've already considered, transitioning from uh, being sole proprietor, if that's the term, yep. of NewEnglandFilm.com. So talk a little bit about that and what you see as the opportunity for you know, whoever might want to uh, inherit what you have created. Right. Yeah. I mean, this has been a long time coming. I mean, I went back to get my degree. I started in 2010. Um, and, you know, that came out of a place where I was a little bit 
little bit done with the entrepreneurial pursuits that I had. You know, to some extent, some of it makes me a little bit not sad isn't right, isn't quite the word, but like nostalgic for the the sort of enthusiasm and energy that I had as an entrepreneur early on. Sure. Um, that to some extent got squashed by an industry that was just didn't look that kindly upon, you know, people who had incredible vision, but not necessarily incredible sort of sales, <laughs> you know, kind of finesse. Um, and, you know, I don't know how much being female had to do with that too. Like now when I look back, I do sometimes wonder like how, how different my path would have been as an entrepreneur had I been male. Um, you know, I, I started a number of businesses and I had an extraordinarily difficult time raising outside capital for those businesses. And mm -hmm. so... And even though sometimes I did get the help of outside people who really did believe in and, and kind of took it on as a cause. Anyway, but, you know, I think that now it's really come to the point where I'm just personally much more interested in doing some of the creative work that I want to do. And um, I don't know if you know, but uh, about a year ago, well, actually, it would, the whole thing didn't happen that long ago, but I um, ended up handing over The Independent, which was another organization that I run for 10 years, which is a, The Independent Film and Video Monthly was a magazine run by um, an organization and it's still online. And I transitioned that organization to Emerson College actually last year. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, so out of that experience, it kind of started to really occur to me that New England Film would probably be better off under the umbrella of another organization mm -hmm. because, um, you know, it's still so needed and wanted and loved by the community. And yet at the same time, like, I just don't have the personal time and energy and commitment to it that I once did. And so it's sort of, it's tough because, you know, my identity has become so linked with New England Film and New England Film has become so linked with me. I mean, 20 some years, it's like, <laughs> <That's yeah. a> <laughs> it's, it feels like a really long time, although it still feels like, how could it have been that long? <laughs> but, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, uh, no, I have decided it's not a question of like, if it's a, it's a matter of when at this point. And I feel really good about the decision. I know it's the right one. I think it's going to be better for me. I think it's going to be better for New England Film. And I'm really looking forward to sort of what this next phase means for both, honestly. Has, has any decision been made as to... No, who, the deadline for proposals... Yeah, the deadline for proposals is January 31st. So I'm going to wait till after that before I proceed with any kind of thinking through of what the options are, but we do have some good prospects and I'm, I'm confident that, you know, there will be a, a great outcome here. So excellent. that's encouraging. Well, yeah. We'll certainly be looking forward to the uh, next iteration yeah. um, of what's become really an online institution. Thank you. You know, in the area, your, your work as a writer uh, is, is kind of fascinating. Uh, I was particularly drawn to the, the Mastermind Failure Club, <laughs> a book that you had published a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And the, um, I, I love the title. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's just, you know, self-empowerment guide for artists, filmmakers, writers, and other creative entrepreneurs. And the, I love the fact that you put the word failure in the mm -hmm. title because it is inevitable. Yes. And you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a stop. Right. It's an opportunity. 
Right. Uh, so I'm curious as to tell me a little bit about how that book came to be. I have so many thoughts about failure that I want to tell you as soon as someone asks me about it, <laughs> but I'll, I'll stick to your question for now, which is- Feel free um, to deviate and improve okay, upon right. my own question. Okay. <laughs> I have no doubt you can. <laughs> um, well, you know, the funny thing about interviews is that I'm a, I'm a writer, but I'm, I like to have edited work and interviews can be difficult because I really would like to like collect my thoughts and then put them together neatly for you and then <laughs> present you with the edited version. But of course, an that interview is more my scattered ramblings. But um, the, the Mastermind Failure Club is a group that I've been part of for the last it's going on five years now. And um, one of my friends who is an artist, Holly Walk in Rhode Island, um, she's a painter. And she invited me to be part of this, this group that she wanted to start. And she was going to call it the Mastermind Failure Club. And she wanted to get a group of us together to kind of form and develop this idea and group. Um, so it was really her idea. And she she wanted it to be a, a kind of a mastermind group in the sense of peers coming together to support each other in entrepreneurial endeavors and you know have accountability and support and brainstorming. But at the same time, she had been exposed to the idea of Failure Club through a group Hacker moms that she had been part of in California. And the idea of a failure club is that you take on something so ambitious that it's presumed that you will fail at the endeavor. Um, and the idea allows an integration of failure in a way that we're typically not comfortable with. We're not usually aiming to fail, right? Failure is the unintended consequence usually. But the whole idea of a failure club is that you're going to shoot so high that you're not going to make that, but you'll do something kind of close to it or near it or approaching it. And that's that's kind of the point of it. And so we've been meeting for several years and we started opening it up to explain to other people how to start these groups because it has been, frankly, so incredibly transformative for each of the seven of us in our group that we wanted to start sharing this idea. And so we had open meetings and we explained to other people how to start these groups and a number of other groups Formed. I put the book together and actually I just published it in April uh, 2020, but okay. I, I put the book together because I wanted to have a quick guide for people to learn how do you start one of these groups and, you know, it's free, it's incredibly powerful and potent, um, but it's something that you can do with the community and resources that you already have. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I really, I, I really am very passionate about people sort of using their creative energy and finding what they want to do, how they want to spend time, who they want to spend their time with, um, and being really purposeful about those kinds of decisions. And this is all kind of tied in with, with that. Is the book almost a template, so to speak, for what a failure club is all about and navigating through one, establishing one? Yes, exactly. It's sort of like the the what, why, how, when, where, or whatever of how to start a mastermind failure club, what it is, why you would do it, what you would potentially get out of it, and um, kind of a guide. Um, I it, this this book came out of actually a longer book project that I have been working on for a couple of years, which is a book on failure, um, and I. 
still have that book. That book will still come out at some point. Um, but I have actually had some trouble getting an agent and publisher interested in it because there's just so much written on failure. But I think that what I have to say is quite different actually, because I think that one of the problems that I see with the way people talk about failure is that Failure is an important learning experience. It's a stepping stone. And I'm not going to deny that failure is an important learning experience. Hopefully you learn something from failure. But I don't really believe that failure is a stepping stone. Failure is not a surefire way to succeed. (laughs) Sometimes you just fail. I mean, it really is a fact. And as someone who has pursued a great number of entrepreneurial endeavors, most of which have failed, and a person who has, you know, been in the creative arena, talking to, meeting with, working with filmmakers, artists, writers, etc., for decades, I can tell you that failure is something that we are confronted with personally all of the time. And so if you don't start to become comfortable with the idea of failure, not as something that you're going to kind of sweep under the rug or get past on your way to being like an Academy Award-winning director, then you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle to to really find your sort of identity as a creative person and your own worth as a creative person. And I really want to push against that idea of, I mean, it's really pushing against the idea of success to some extent and what we mean by success. Well, by, and by the same token, what do we mean by failure? Right. Um, You know, particularly, uh, you know, in the subtitle of your book, the self-empowerment guide for artists, filmmakers, writers, and other creative entrepreneurs, you know, uh, the, what is the litmus test that determines whether or not you're, um, uh, your project or your ambition has fallen short. Is it mm-hmm. lack of completion? Is it completion, but there wasn't market embrace of it? Is, are we talking about finances? Mm-hmm. Um, how important is a unified definition of failure uh, to the success of, of one of these groups? Right. I mean, I think that I think we have to push against all of those kind of what we believe failure and success really mean, because I think that the problem with success, as I see it, I mean, we're in a success culture, to be frank. And that what that means is that everybody always wants more. They want more money. They want more fans. They want more prestige. They want more, 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 more. Right. And so there's always someone who has more. (laughs) And so you could always kind of see yourself as a failure. And, you know, I've, I've, over the years, I've read interviews with, with people who talk about their quote successes and that, you know, sometimes they reach these heights in their careers and kind of feel like a sham because they don't feel like the success that they supposedly are. Um, And at the same time, everyone else is looking at them like, if only I could be the next so-and-so. Mm-hmm. It's just not that sim- simple. And the truth is that I personally would like to see a world where everyone is working on the creative work that they feel is the most important to them personally and to the world that they want to have an impact on, and then make that work and try to get it out there to as many people as they can, and not worry so much about whether there are five people who really engage meaningfully with their work or 5,000 or 5 million. It just... 
it, I just think that we get too focused on these kind of numbers of how much money, how many fans, how many whatever, and it's just the wrong metric. And I think that's probably particularly the case in the creative fields because almost always, at least the common perception is that whether you succeed or fail will be judged externally. If, right. you know, the, the world is probably full of brilliant writers and no more than a handful of people have ever write, read their stuff. Yeah. And the people who have read their stuff, you know, for them, it could have been, you know, mind blowing and a transformative experience. But the marketplace, and when I say marketplace, I'm not just talking dollars, I'm talking, you know, critical response or, um, uh, and now in the age of social media, of likes and shares right. and followers, et cetera, may have deemed that, you know, a failure. So I always feel like creatives, the bar is set even higher. Um, it I, is. I, I can remember, I can remember years and years ago, uh, a friend of mine who was just, he, he's just an amazing piano player. He, you know, he, he's an amazing piano player and people would listen to him play and you could almost set a timer before someone said, oh, you're amazing. You should do something with that. And my thought was, he just did. <laughs> he just played an amazing piece of music. <laughs> right, exactly. I think that, that maybe there's some kind of, I don't know what it is about human nature that want, that causes us to always want to like quantify things or categorize things. But, you know, I, I exactly think that. I think that the the making of the art could be its own thing. And I think that, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, one of the great scams sort of perpetrated on artists of all categories, filmmakers, writers, et cetera, is that we hold up these icons of people who are, who are remarkably successful and make a good deal of money at those careers. But the fact of the matter is that most creative people do not earn their living wage from their creative work. It is just a fact. And, you know, that doesn't mean, in my opinion, that we should be dissuading anyone from ever going into the arts. Instead, I think that we have to say, okay, you have this passion. This is what you feel like you are meant to do in your life. How can we figure out a way for you to incorporate that into your life in a way that you want to move forward? Because mm -hmm. not everyone wants to make a business out of their art is the mm -hmm. fact of it. It's, and, and I think, like you said, your friend who's playing piano, I mean, maybe that, maybe you just want to put your work out there in the world and you don't want to have to worry about how to kind of make it measure up in the world of money. Sure. <laughs> um, and that's not to say there aren't some people who do, and that's fine too. The point is that running an art business or running a production company is a different thing than making art are making films. And you the more conscious you can kind of be at any phase of your career about what you're really looking to get out of this with a realistic point of view, being super ambitious. I, I'm all for ambition, trust me. But I also think with the, with the sense of humor about it that, you know, I'm not probably going to be the next whatever. And so how am I going to manage to feel good about the work that I'm putting out there in the world? Yeah. And I, I have... I, I have heard of and I have I have experienced myself that sometimes when you not necessarily let go of that ambition, but you come to think of it in a different way, that it somehow frees you up and 
you know, sure enough, that creative pursuit just happens to be received by the right people at the right time. And, you know, you're a quote unquote success, you know, <laughs> along those lines. I mean, it is, it is ironic that, you know, the thing is that it, there's an audience for everything, I think. And so um, when you're making work that is really kind of authentic and meaningful to you, then very likely it's going to feel that way to some other group of people as well. Um, so, yeah. But, you know, I think that the, the, the fact of it is that I've seen with a, with a good deal of filmmakers and, and um, artists is that, you know, not all of them really want to run that business. And if you're really thinking about um, pursuing that as your sole career, you have to think about it as an entrepreneur or as, as entering into the business of it, um, which is something much different than just, I like to make films or I want to make art or... And you're, so you're also a, uh, a teacher, a assistant professor at Bridgewater State in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Right. What are you finding, what perceptions uh, of failure or success within the creative areas are your students bringing uh, to, to class with them? Are they, do you find that they're different maybe than ones that were held a generation ago? I think that, you know, I mean, there's lots written about and talked about in terms of a growth mindset, in terms of understanding that, you know, you have to be okay with failure to really learn and grow. Um, but I, I think that there's still a lot of fears around failure for students as kind of as much at Bridgewater and at Brown University from talking to friends. I mean, failure is very scary. Um, and, you know, the students who come to our school, they need to make sure that they can get a job afterwards, right? We're all, you know, they, they need to make sure that they, quote, are successful. Um, and so how to integrate the idea of failure in a way that also makes you recognize, okay, I need to figure out how to kind of, quote, design my life. You know, there's a book, Designing Your Life, which I've used in some classes, and it really is talking about how to be conscious about these kinds of decisions that you're making and how life design is not like a straight path to one final outcome, right? You're constantly changing your career. You're changing your priorities. You know, throughout your life, you might get married or get divorced or have children or, you know, have different, move different places, change your career. And, and all of these things are going to mean uh, different things to you at different ages. And so you have to remain flexible and you have to remain able to sort of think about what are your priorities? What is it that you need to accomplish? And how can you make the best decisions with the information that you have? How can you seek out good information and how can you make the best decisions? So I think it's, you know, there's a combination thing. There's the creative work. I mean, obviously students are graded, unfortunately. I mean, frankly, I would wish, I wish I didn't ever have to give any grades on anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only part of teaching that I do not really like. But I think that, you know, what how I address that is trying to make it so that students can have a chance to do something wrong and still ultimately do okay in the course, you know, that it's not, oh, you failed this assignment and now that's it for you. Sure. <laughs> you know, having a chance to revise your work and realize that writing and filmmaking and all of these things are about revision. It's not about getting it right the first time. It's about 
getting feedback on your work, about learning how to accept critical feedback that you hear and integrating what you believe are valid points on that work and then making the necessary changes. You've also done a lot of work within the area of uh, sexual consent in the media. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one of your books is The Independent Female Filmmaker's Guide. Is there a connection between those two? Um, pursuits and, uh, you know, how do, uh, how is that uh, incorporated into all your other creative work? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I've always been a very passionate feminist, I will say. And, you know, one of the first books that I started writing when I was eight years old was about my outrage at um, attending the Virginia Slims tennis tournament and they handed us all these books that had all these really sexist sayings in it. And of course it was supposed to be feminist. Like they were showing, look at how outdated these quotes are, but they still handed us this book of sexist quotes <laughs> as a calendar. Sponsored by a cigarette for women. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think it was thinning. Wasn't that the advertising <laughs> around it? Exactly. How can you get better than that? Right. Um, you can't make up stuff better than that. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, so, so yes, I think all of these things are definitely connected. Um, I have always been really passionate about kind of championing underrepresented and uh, grassroots filmmakers. I mean, part of what I did very early on in New England film was promote short filmmakers and filmmakers from different backgrounds and female filmmakers. And I was really interested in the work that was being done that was different than what I was seeing in mainstream Hollywood films. And that work was often being done by people who were marginalized in different ways in, in that community. And so the the Independent Female Filmmakers book came out of my interest in wanting to, to talk and learn more about female filmmakers. You know, I taught a class at Boston College while I was getting my PhD, um, Independent American Film. And when I was kind of gathering ideas of who to include in that course, everyone was telling me, you know, oh, Wes Anderson, Woody Allen, um, the Coen brothers, like all these people. And I never heard a female filmmaker name. And I, first I was kind of outraged. And then I was like, wait, I don't know who to include who are female either. Um, And so, you know, I realized that I had some self-educating to do as well. And yeah, and so it really, to me, and what I really argue in the introduction of the book is that we all can be part of this solution. One of the biggest problems that I see in the industry is not only the fact that women and um, people of color are, have been kind of excluded from making films. Obviously that's a huge problem, but even if we address that problem, we still have to contend with the fact that we had over a hundred years of film history where people were specifically and very systemically excluded from making mainstream films. And to, to allow our film history to only be told by the people who were allowed to make and market and get their films made and seen, I feel like is ethically wrong. We have to go back and we have to revisit our film history and, and start incorporating some of the films that perhaps are not as polished as some of the Hollywood films of their you know eras. But tell a story that's much different from a different point of view and use different form, different styles, uh, different types of narrative. And um, so, and all of us can be part of that solution. It's not just Hollywood. It's all of us. It's, it's fans, it's teachers, it's students of film. It's, you know, everyone. Are you, are you seeing progress along those lines? 
I mean, you know, it's very disappointing to see something like the American Film History, a film, I'm sorry, the American Film Institute still putting out a list of the 100 best American films and not one female filmmaker, not one person of color director on that list. I mean, the fact that we could be in 2021 and a list like that can continue to be perpetuated in our community and at, at an organization that supposedly champions female directors. Right. I find it extremely discouraging and disturbing. Um, I'm not going to say that it's not getting better. I think that there's a lot more awareness, but until I start seeing, you know, the national film registry with an equal number of diverse perspectives and these kinds of lists, you know, after the most recent kind of pushback on the film industry this summer with a lot of the Black Lives Matter stuff, you know, Criterion Film came out with a statement saying that we realize our role as kind of gatekeepers in what is part of our film history. And they want to take a more active role in that. I hope they do. I hope all of the organizations that have that kind of power take that role really seriously mm -hmm. because if they just say, well, we're just promoting the things that were popular or that, that stood out to us, what discovery are you doing? How much effort are you putting into finding other voices from different backgrounds? Because like I said, I am a woman. And when I was set to teach a class on independent American film, I had to actually go out and start looking for films by women, <laughs> even though I am one. Right. Um, because these are not the films that we kind of grew up learning about, watching and, and hearing about from our friends. So we have to do a little, we have to put a little more effort in. And I know that can be hard and feel unsettling, but it's, I think it's the important work that we all are sort of charged with. I think something that is um, kind of eye-opening is, you know, when you, when you talk about uh, that list of the, what was it 100 most influential or best right. American filmmakers, I would bet that a large portion of those filmmakers considered themselves to be super open-minded, uh, super progressive, and yet there is a there is a commonality around the collective narrative uh, that that is being espoused, you know, uh, for the culture at large, which makes that hill even steeper. That yeah. uh, you know, when when well-intended people, are well, I think that's sort the of thing an that... extension of the problem. Yeah, that's the thing that disturbs me the most about the American Film Institute's 100 Best Films is that, um, you know, I mean, it's not to say that there aren't great films on that list. I'm sure, you know, I, I like a lot of those films, but to put together a list, and I, I know that it's put together, they say, by over 1,500 scholars, filmmakers, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, that is still pretty shocking. You know, there's several Hitchcock films on the list. So it's just, it's a kind of feels to me like a bit of a lack of imagination. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, these are the films that I grew up seeing. These are the films that I know about. And so these are the films that I'm going to vote for. Um, what, you know, it, it feels almost irresponsible to me to put a list out there like that, even if it's, you're saying, oh, it's not our list. It's the list of, you know, this 
group. Um, it's just not okay. We need to stop doing that. We need to hold organizations accountable to putting those kinds of lists together. And I know that many people would say like, oh, who cares? What does it matter? Well, the fact is that, you know, I talked to a young person the other day, a high school student who was saying, oh, I'm going through the American Film Institute best list and I'm watching all of those films this summer. This was just this past summer. And I was like, oh my God. This is what people are using to like go and learn about film history, right? right. And so it, it and then what are they getting? They're getting a very they're getting a white male heterosexual view of film history. And that is not representative of American or world his film history. And so, you know, we have to be more inclusive than that. We really can do much better. Do can you think of? Not, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you know, over the last decade or so, uh, films that were made by female writers, directors that forget about that, you know, best list because it's such a level of subjectivity into in that, but ones that you know really didn't achieve the um, the market saturation that they deserved. And, you know, maybe where people can find these films now. Right. Um, I mean, there are, there are so many. Um, right now, of course, I'm working on my next book, which is about how sexual consent is represented in teen films. So I'm very much like my headspace right now is in the teen film category. Um, so, you know, I'm looking at films like The Miseducation of Cameron Post and Lady Bird and... Um, you know, The Tale by Jennifer Fox. And she's one of the filmmakers that I interview in, in my book. Is that the um, Laura Dern movie? Yep. Yeah, and okay. it is, I mean, it ended up because of the nature of the film, which is about a, a girl who's uh, basically sexually assaulted by her coach growing up. Um, it, it ended up going directly to HBO and it didn't qualify for any Academy Awards because it didn't have the theatrical release. It had like a television release, right. yep. um, which was in my mind really too bad because that was like, uh, but you know, I never really agree with the Academy Awards. So it's kind of a moot point. And I, I always mean, find <laughs> that audiences don't make that distinction. I mean, yeah. and more and more because there's so many content platforms right now. Right. And, and, and I think. That right. So in, like, what does it matter? Yeah. In a, in, in a post COVID world, it's going right. to, it's going to. I hope some less. of those categories start to break down because they do, do feel a little bit ridiculous to me. And I mean, you know, I, I have to say like, I don't always agree with the Academy's choices in, in films. I mean, I, the best example I have is like the year um, Spike Lee's do the right thing was up for best picture, you know, or was, could have won best picture instead driving Miss Daisy one. I mean, which is the film that has stood the test of time and is still meaningful decades later. You know, I think we know which film really was, should have been an Oscar winning film at the time. Well, you had a similar situation <laughs> just two years ago with Green Book. Right. Uh, right. Winning. Yeah. I mean, Hollywood loves to embrace the African-American experience told through the eyes of a white <sighs> protagonist. Yes. I had a lot of trouble with that film. And it also, I felt like the representation of Italian-Americans bothered me as an Italian-American. I'm just tired of seeing those kinds of representations. It's like, okay, can we expand the, <laughs> the point of view here a bit, guys? <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, I think that there are so many and I, and I, I, I don't, I think that um, if you're really interested in seeking those out, um, you know, obviously the book, Independent Female Filmmakers, 
has interviews with 15 filmmakers, Miranda July, um, Cheryl Dunyer, there's, and, and, and all of their films are these amazing films that you can go back and, and watch. I mean, Miranda July is one of my favorite filmmakers. Me and you and everyone we know is just sure. one of the most weird and wonderful and brilliant films. Were you familiar um, with the work of Lynn Shelton? Not so much, I have oh. to say. No. Sort of Trust, I recommend. Yeah, uh, okay, highly. good. I'll watch that. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's super heartbreaking in the aftermath because Mark Marin, who was her boyfriend, is also in it. And mm-hmm. um and she she wrote and directed it. I think he may have co-wrote it with her. Uh but um she wrote and directed it and she she actually has a cameo role in it where mm-hmm. she plays I think an ex-girlfriend of his, but it's, um, that really turned me on to her work. Right. And then, you know, I, a couple months later, she yeah. passed away far, far too young. Um, one thing that, and this is maybe just an anecdotal observation that, um, you know, data doesn't support, but it feels to me like the worlds of independent film and documentary film, both from the filmmakers and the producer standpoint, uh, is far more inclusive of female voices and, you know, female executives. Um, I know it's a, a couple of women run like HBO documentary films. Uh, and there's some very, um, um, I'm thinking of the woman who uh, runs the documentary unit for Netflix also. Um, do, is there any validity to that observation? Well, I mean, you know, I always look to the studies that Martha Lawson does, um, where she studies both the top grossing 250 and 500 grossing films and what, where women were on the, you know, director, cinematographer, et cetera. And she does the same study for independence. And the way she uses that is she picks like, I think the top, top, some top 25 film festivals and the films that were featured at those festivals, what percentage of them had female directors, et cetera. Um, And it's not as great as you might think. Um, Women tend to be more documentary filmmaker directors as opposed to narrative. Um, And there still has been in other studies done um, at the Annenberg Initiative, Inclusive Initiative, they've found that there's there's often a one and done kind of phenomenon for women and people of color, or there's a problem with women who make short films and then somehow aren't able to get their film um, to be, you know, made into a a feature film. I do think some of this is changing. And I think that there's more of an interest in discovery of, of female director talent that there definitely was not years ago. I mean, Mm -hmm. You look at years ago when, you know, Wes Anderson, for instance, was was discovered, you know, he made a short film. They got a year on a studio lot to write a, a, a feature based on their short film. And then that feature film was actually a commercial and critical failure. It didn't do well at the box office. It didn't even get into Sundance. It was basically, it, it was not, I, I actually really like the film Which Bottle Rocket. Which of his Rocket. films was that? Bottle this Rocket. was Bottle Rocket. Right, I mean, yeah. I actually think the film is brilliant. I love it. Um, One of the uh, Wilson brothers is in that, right? Yes, yeah. They're, um, they're both in it. They're, they're both, both in it. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it's a, a brilliant brother, film. Twofer. Before it's time, but you know, it was, and yet they still got another chance to make another movie after that. That's right. how much they were believed in and kind of, guided through getting their way into the industry. And I just am not, I haven't seen the same kind of uh, 
care <laughs> given to female directors or directors of color. I hope that's going to change. You know? Yeah, I was I, listening to an interview with a, a female director named Mimi Leader, mm-hmm. who um, I came to know her work through uh, an amazing HBO television series called The Leftovers. She directed, I think they had 30 episodes and she probably directed 15 or so. Right. And yeah, I was just really, really taken by some of the decisions she made and her use of just the way she, you know, moved the story. So I tend to do deep dives on people whose work I, I, I become um, infatuated with. And I dug up this interview with her and she had been a television director. And I think she might've been a assistant director on a couple of features, but her big opportunity was this film called The Peacemaker mm-hmm. with George Clooney and Nicole Kidman and huge budget, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it bombed. Ironically, The Peacemaker was a bomb in the movie, um, but it bombed. And she just talked about, you know, she was essentially put in the penalty box uh, for about 12 years. Yeah. Like where she couldn't even get commercials. Right. It's, it's kind yeah, of I mean, Martha Coolidge, uh, who I interviewed in my book as well, she was the um, head of president of the Directors Guild of America for a brief period of time, um, director of Valley Girl, real genius. I mean, she made some really successful movies early on, and yeah, she ladies. found that she couldn't get directing work because of, you know, it was kind of like, you know, she the way she explained it is if, as a male filmmaker, if you'd made one film that did made it, you were kind of set for life. And and it was the opposite for female filmmakers. You made one film that didn't quite do well, you were kind of done for life. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you were relegated to to television, which of course is not as as marginalizing as it used to be. But, right. you know, when she was doing it in the 80s to be sort of not be able to find feature work and have to move over to television felt like kind of a step down. And um she wasn't able to get producer credits on a lot of her films and they would flat out tell her that you can't get it because you're a woman. They would say it. Um, and you know, that meant more prestige, more money. Um, and you know, and so there was, you know, active discrimination happening. I I think that people are a little bit (laughs) at least more careful to not be as explicit with the way they are discriminating, but I think we still have a long way to go, even in just kind of like the types of stories that we can imagine being told, you know, we, as, as storytellers, we all kind of get locked into patterns, I think, of how stories tend to go. And it, it, you know, it's hard to open up that to new ways of thinking about the world. Yeah, and along those lines, the um, the the subject matter of the book that you're working on now about mm-hmm. consent in um, is it, is it teen films in particular? Yeah, in teen films, yeah, yeah. And I I wonder if you've spent much time looking at the uh, I guess you would call it kids television programming that's offered by the likes of Nickelodeon and Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember my uh, my my daughter who's 21 now when she was a little kid, she just, you know, she loved watching each of those. Mm-hmm. And I was incensed. It was basically, it was your network sitcom template. Right. But you, but the casting was just younger, but <laughs> all of the same dynamics were in place. Mm-hmm. All of the same dynamics. It was, you know, the, 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 the most important thing for the girls was to be pretty mm-hmm. and to, you know, impress and win over the boy. Even when the boy was portrayed jokingly as like a lummox, right. you know, but you still <laughs> wanted to go after that guy. And it just, it just blew my mind how those um, persisted 
And, yeah. and, and I wouldn't even put myself on the, on the spectrum of people who are super aware of that, but mm-hmm. it, it just seemed undeniable to me. And it feels to me like if you're going to understand those depictions, once you get up into the teen films, the origins of those, almost those, you know, those sort of memes, those cultural right. memes, they get, they get indoctrinated so early. Yeah, I mean I think I think it's important to recognize that youth can think critically about the media that they're watching if they're taught to do so. If they're taught to engage in it on a level where it's like what am I seeing and do I agree with the what what's being shown to me. Um but that not is not necessarily the default. <laughs> um and I think that you know we do especially because in this country we are so reluctant to really delve into sex education at a young age explicitly that you know young people really learn quite a lot about how to navigate relationships and sexual situations through movies and television. Um, And that's not to say that that means movies and television should always show exactly the best case scenario. I am not like, I don't believe in censorship. And I don't believe that filmmakers should only show one type of situation. But I do think that one of the things I realized after I got my PhD or as I was getting it, at first it kind of stymied me as a, as a filmmaker. And I thought, how will I ever be able to make anything again? Like now I suddenly realize kind of the import (laughs) of everything I put out there in the world. Um, but it, I came around to realizing that, no, it's not about just like, no, you can't, there's nothing, you can't say anything. It's about really thinking about what is the meaning you're putting out there? Is that the meaning you intend? Um, because if it's not, then maybe you should, you should push back on the story, push back on some of the characters. Um, and and rethink and not go for the kind of first thing that comes to your mind. Because as writers, you know, it is true. It's like, it's right there. It's right there for the taking because it's the thing we've seen over and over again. Um, And I always tell students, the first thing that comes to your mind is probably not going to be the best because it's the one that was like the past path was like already kind of laid out to get to like what that character would be like or what situation would end up like for that character. Um, and, and the more we can kind of push back on that, I mean, I think that there's so much encouraging work being done in the area of, of teen films. And I think that they're taking consent a lot more seriously, which is great, but I'm still really, I've, I've been spending the past couple of weeks watching a lot of queer teen films because that's the chapter I'm working on right now. And I find it just really discouraging how many teen films depict queer teens as being ostracized and bullied and, um, you know, marginalized. And of course, I don't want to say that those things aren't happening. Of course they are happening. But I also just kind of want to see like aspirational stories, I guess, you know, stories where there are teens coming together because they love each other or because they're attracted to each other. And like the biggest part of the story is not like the drama of them coming out or the, the drama of them overcoming this like crazy community who doesn't think they should exist. You know, I just want to see more stories that are just about two people kind of falling in love in a, in this other way than in the way that like we've seen teen films kind of over the years. And mm-hmm. it, I, it, I'm kind of shocked that in 20, you know, I'm looking at films 2020 and, and, and the last couple of years, and I'm just kind of shocked that there's not more of those. 
Well, here we are in um, January of 2021. Mm -hmm. As you look out over the next six, 12 months uh, in your very busy schedule, (laughs) uh, what do you hope to uh, achieve creatively this year? That is always the difficult question, isn't it? So I have a contract for um, the consent in teen films book. So I am that is my number one project. And um, I will be completing that uh, by the end of the summer, a draft of that. And then going through the revision stage after that, it's, it's due in September. So that is the project that I am working on for the next couple months. Of course, as you know, I am not a single project kind of person. <laughs> So that would not be the only thing that I was doing. But, you know, I also will be transitioning transitioning New England film, which will take a good amount of my time. I'll be teaching, of course, at Bridgewater in the spring. Um, and, you know, I do, like I said, I do want to start thinking more about my film in the summer and at least getting to the point where I can apply for some grants to get back into production, especially once this book draft is done, I will have more time to sort of think more creatively about that too. Well, I look forward to keeping track of all of that and to uh, checking in with you again. I would love to have another conversation when your book is out in the world. Great. That would be Um, awesome. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. And thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Thank you so much again for having me. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. All right, Michelle, you be well. You too.